welcome to week 19. I'm really grateful to be here, and I'm Farrell. And I'm Rhonda Pickering. And we are just always so elated to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We really are. It, it, it really is a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot of work too, but that's okay. Works good. We learn so much more than I they think, do. Yeah, I was going to say that. We get the better end of this in a lot of ways. However, that before we get going, we always like to, and I got teased about this, that you got to like us first. But anyway, give us a like and subscribe, please. Anyway, and with that, I'm just going to say, way to go Let's for it. Let's go into the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple today. And I am, I want to right up front, tell everybody where I want to go with this because there is so much material this week. We're going to kind of do it in two parts. Farrell's going to cover the Leviticus chapters and I'm going to cover the tabernacle in the wilderness. Whenever we do two parts, everybody starts to diminish on the second part. So we're not calling it that. Oh, this is going to be, this is week 19 and bonus. At yeah, the end. Bonus <laughs> okay. Anyway. All right. So um, what we what I want to accomplish is I, I would like for you to have your a new understanding of how the ancient peoples, the tabernacle, the Bible, how relevant it is today. Next time you go to the temple, I want you to be able to walk into a room and see the tabernacle in the wilderness and how it how it fits in with everything that we experience today because the gospel doesn't change. Yeah, the gospel doesn't change. Only procedural <clears throat> stuff changes. The sometimes. plan of salvation was mapped out from the beginning of time. Now, I think sometimes people get tripped up because there's different phases that the as the gospel expands, there's different phases that it, it or time periods or prophetically appointed times that I think that you're going to be talking about that that we go through. But in the long run. It's all the same plan. And Jesus Christ's plan is to save every soul that the Father gives to him. So with that... In reality, yeah, it's just being added to. That's, that's so important from Abraham chapter 3, that, that we add to the things that have gone before. We don't take away from them. So let's go in and jump into the tabernacle in the wilderness. The second thing that... Uh, that I would really like for everyone to be able to take away from this is that it's all about the Savior. It's I love that. It's all about In reality, Jesus Christ. he's almost in every verse, if you just go deep enough. In every verse, in every piece of furniture in the temple, yes. in every door, in every veil. So let's get into it and, and take a look. First, we're gonna we're gonna brief over really quickly because I want to get into the tabernacle itself, the coverings on the tabernacle. But just like we said, they are all about pictures of the atonement of Christ. The ram is uh, the red. Basically, they started with the linen covering, and each covering that they had over the top of the tabernacle was a little bit larger than the covering before so that it completely covered the layer that was underneath it and so you have the 11 panels that were the linen covering that was the the linen that they used in the tabernacle in the wilderness was was just elaborate and and so skillful the embroidery that they did was an embroidery where you would see the cherubim on one side and 
on the there wasn't a wrong side of the fabric. You would see the the same cherubim on the other side of the fabric too. So it didn't have the seams on the inside. Thing. Exactly. Yeah. It was made to be double sided. Maybe we could say it that way and woven that way. There were specific colors and of course this linen one after it got covered up with everything else from the outside it doesn't look so spectacular. But wait till you see what you would have seen by walking in on the inside. So there's that embroidered linen cover first. Then they had a goat skin covering that went over that one. And of course there's practical aspects to, to everything, but there's symbolic aspect to every single detail that is in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Um, the goat was the sin offering. And every day they would have a burnt offering, a daily offering, and then they would have goats that were given for sin offerings. The ram, you remember the ram from Genesis 23, where the ram was in the thicket and it was a substitutionary trespass offering. And we're not going to have time to go into all yeah. of the sacrifices so and offerings. The, the difference. Oh, gosh, no, no, no. I, I love learning about the offerings that were given in the wilderness. They're so meaningful and they always represent something bigger than what you read on the surface. But you have the ram skin that was specifically dyed red to be a trespass offering. That one covered the goat skin. And then the last one was a weatherproofing. Um, they, it's translated in the King James as badger skin. That had been an awful lot of badgers running around the <laughs> desert. Um, that most scholars believe it was some sort of a waterproofing. It was like a porpoise. Um, it's possibly we don't even have that kind of animal still today, which is why it's hard to translate it into English. But it, it was definitely a, a protective covering that went over the whole thing. Now, um, it's super important to realize that every detail of the tabernacle in the wilderness was revealed by God. And so every single thing is a picture of something eternal, something important from the furniture design to the, the, the types of metal and the types of wood that were used on every piece that they would assemble into the tabernacle. It was all given by revelation. And more importantly, it was a picture of the throne room of God. And that, symbolically speaking. Symbolically speaking, all of the furnishings <clears throat> that we're going to talk about are listed as pieces of furniture at the throne of God in heaven. And we're going to and Jesus claims every single piece of furniture. And we'll we'll be we'll be looking at that <clears throat> as we go through. As a matter of fact, most of the I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the <clears throat> testament will coordinate with pieces of furniture. In the tabernacle. So the first thing to, to kind of get a feel for as you're looking through the specs for how to assemble the tabernacle, it's really important to realize that when the tabernacle plans were given to Moses when he came down from the mountain, that they're revealed in the order of God's perspective. So if God's presence is in the Holy of Holies, what you're going to see is moving from the information on how to construct the Holy of Holies, moving outward to the holy place and then to the courtyard. Um, when they actually assemble it in chapters 35 to 40, the ones that we've been doing for this class today, they're going to assemble it from the outside 
coming in. And so it's kind of interesting to do a comparison that way. But the other thing that we want to get familiar with is the materials that they used. So in the outer fence perimeter, it would have been the shatim wood and it was um, the thorn bush of the desert, but it was uh, the properties of not rotting. What, what's what's that like? We use cedar wood so that it... Redwood, cedar wood. Right. Anyway, it had those kind of properties. Mold or mildew. It doesn't rot as much. And so, and then in the outer courtyard, you're going to see that the, the bases, the sockets that these... Um, that these poles basically went into were made of brass. So brass is a metal that can take high heat. So that's why you're gonna have the altar built of brass and everything in the outer courtyard, you're going to see predominantly brass. But as it ascends, you're going to start to see silver. So you have the brass base of, along the, the canvas fence, but then you're gonna have the capitors are going to be silver. So the metals are getting more precious as you ascend all throughout the tabernacle. So there's the the sockets at the bottom and the capitals on top and the and the different metals that are there. And then you're going to see all the furnishings in the courtyard are going to be of brass, the brazen labor, the brazen altar. And then you're going to see that the tabernacle itself, the sockets at the bottom are silver. And then the, the wood is going to be gold-plated. Now, I just imagine this, that when they assemble these walls, there's going to be like 96 of these beams. When they assemble these walls and you go on to the inside of the tabernacle, the walls are gold and they're reflective. And just imagine the light of the menorah dancing on the walls inside the holy place. This is, this is incredible what they are commanded to construct here. Then, of course, as you get towards the Holy of Holies, <clears throat> your furniture is going to be gold. Your menorah is going to be gold. Your table of shewbread and your incense altar. And then, of course, in, when you get in the Holy of Holies, we're talking about solid gold. So this gradation of materials is representing man's journey from mortality to exaltation and this is not anything that isn't found throughout scripture so in Isaiah we actually have a class on our website showing the ascending imagery of stones and metals throughout scripture in Isaiah we're looking at the wood it says in Isaiah 60 in place of wood I will bring copper so this end time, so yeah, in this end time grand scenario, we, we're talking about in place of stones, I will bring iron. And so we have the stones and the metals ascending, basically, in the end time. In uh, your terrestrial category, your copper, instead of copper, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. So it's not just one level of ascent. Everyone <clears throat> through this end time grand finale the Heavenly Father has orchestrated is going to ascend or descend. And we're told that in First Nephi where he says in the end time there'll be two churches only, the Church of the Lamb of God and the Church of the Devil, and we'll be making choices, and this will cause us to ascend. And I love that in uh, the celestial category, in place of copper, I will bring gold. 
And in place of iron, we see the silver. So gold and silver are a celestial type motif. And brass is going to be a telestial type motif. Silver and, and gold being progressively more holy in the tabernacle. So let's, let's go to the Salt Lake Temple. I'm so excited to look at the Salt Lake Temple and see if you can picture where you would be in the tabernacle of the, in the wilderness as you go through the temples today because they are teaching the same principles. So you're going to enter in on the basement level and move clockwise through the temple, starting in the creation room, where we will be facing east, representing the source of life. And from this room, we will symbolically descend or move from our pre-earth life to the garden room. And so all of these pictures um, are being pulled online, and, um, and we're just going to geographically walk through the tabernacle in the wilderness and kind of compare it to a geographic walkthrough of what's going on in the temple. Okay, that's where we're going with this. So you can see that the presence of God, where we would have been in the pre-earth life, is like the Holy of Holies. That's where the presence of God is. So we came from a celestial type um, environment. And of course, it would be different from the celestial environment that we'll be returning to, perhaps, but still it was in the presence of God. And then we're going to move clockwise, and we're going to remain on the, that basement level and go into the garden room. Now, the garden room faces south, and it is biblically, anything in the south in the Bible is idiomatic of warmth and blessing. I mean, just think of birds flying south for the summer to get warm, okay? And from this room, we will follow in the footsteps of the fall as we're driven out of the garden, past a stained glass window that will depict the fall. So if you imagine yourself in the tabernacle in the wilderness, then we would have been in a celestial place, and now we would be falling from a terrestrial place, okay? So in 2 Nephi, we're, we're given the, um, the tools when we fall of how Heavenly Father wants us to get back home. He established the atonement to help us with the fall so that we can make it back to his presence so that's the goal we've fallen now and we're trying to make it back home to heavenly father well, and, it's like isaiah we descend yes we descend before we ascend before we descend we before we ascend. absolutely i love that thank you for bringing that out and then there's just a, a few scriptures here because we discussed at the beginning that jesus claims every piece of furniture every door everything in the temple and here he says that in second nephi 9 he is the keeper of the gate he is the holy one of israel and he employeth no servant there i love that and there is none other way save it be by the gate so all of these scriptures are poetic, yes, but they're physically describing temples that they would have been familiar with. And that first entrance is called the gate. You're going to see it in numbers. You're going to see Miriam is called to uh, get a scolding from the Lord at the gate. <laughs> Actually, you know, you don't ever want to get called to the gate because <laughs> that means that you might be in trouble. But well, yeah. maybe, maybe getting called to the gate is kind of a 
I guess there'd be a good scenario. size, yeah. <laughs> a good side of it too. Hopefully, but, you know. we're on the good side of it. <laughs> so Jesus is the keeper of the gate there, and then we see that the next piece of furniture that you would approach in the tabernacle in the wilderness would be the altar of sacrifice in the the courtyard just beyond the gate and the entrance there, and then of course. John is going to, John the Baptist is going to, as soon as he sees Jesus, is going to say, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So Jesus Christ is the offering on that altar of sacrifice, particularly at the Passover that we talked about in a couple of our lessons ago. But, and in Revelation it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So here we see Christ in that altar as we move through the gate into the tabernacle in the wilderness. John, in the book of John, Jesus also says, I am the door. I'm actually going to address... Are you going to talk about the door too? Well, the I am in the door and oh, some of that. Oh, cool, cool. In, I'm going to be pulling. In stage two. Yeah, I'm going to be pulling the bonus. I'm going to be pulling in a lot of I am statements as they relate <clears throat> to the tabernacle in the wilderness. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So now when you're in John and you're thinking of the sheepfold, all of a sudden now you can see the sheepfold is the temple. And if the, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill, but I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. So here we're going to take a look and what you're going to see here is a diagram. This is actually, you can see it's in Hebrew, okay? And you can see this is a picture of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And they actually have what are zones, basically, of holiness. And when you very first come in the gate, you're coming from a place of death. And now you've come into the courtyard. But we're unclean when we come in from the world. And so these offerings, this blood atonement, this covering for our sins is to make us clean so that we can move closer to God. We can move closer to the holy place. And in the Holy of Holies, and I just love this, what you have to imagine is as you're walking through the tab in, in that path, in that straight path to the Holy of Holies from the front gate, that you are moving from death to life. And not only to life, but Jesus says to life more abundantly. I want to give everyone uh, an ascent to yeah, something well, the better. the purpose of a descent is to ascend. Right. Higher. Right. I, I'm a mathematical guy, so I think of the wave. You know, you start here, and you go... You yeah, go, I, you I do think the sine that wave. too, you go right? down and then up. And the further the descent, we're told in, in the Atonement of Christ, the further the descent, the higher the ascent in the end. And so... Forgive the crazy analogy here, but I think of flubber. 
Remember in the old movie, <laughs> Sons of Flurry? Disney movie, Sons of Flurry. Yeah, it bounced higher than it started. Bounced higher and higher. Bouncing higher. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, no, I hadn't thought of that one before. But <clears throat> so the point here is in our diagram. I have to keep you on your toes. I guess so. <laughs> like, what? Oh yeah, that's a pretty good analogy. But <clears throat> what we have here, and and this would happen. Just so as, you know, that's the old one with Fred McMurray that we're talking. Right. <laughs> So, as a person became clean, as, as an atonement was made, and they could move further in into the temple, um, sometimes we mess up, sometimes we become unclean again. And so, basically, if... We have to go out and start over. <laughs> and this is kind of weird. So, some people think this is kind of weird, because if you were bleeding in any way, that was looked at as you're dying. Your blood is going out of you. So if you had a soldier and he was cut and he was bleeding, he was unclean. He couldn't go to the temple. He had okay. to go back out until, until he wasn't dying, and then he could, and then an offering could be made, and then he could be clean again. Hard for us to totally connect with that, but but the idea is that they're dying. Death is this way, and, uh, and life. I, I don't know if that makes a difference on the camera. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, death is backwards, life is forwards, and if anything happens that you become unclean and you have to have an offering, you have to have an atonement made, and then you can move forward into the sanctuary again. And we do this with the sacrament every week as we mess up again. We have to go back and get cleaned again so that we can try renew to the move, covenant we renew the covenant and move forward again. This is the same picture that they had. They just had different <clears throat> different models to do it with. All right, so the gate, that front gate, had colors on it. And it's beautiful that it's blue and purple and scarlet and white, and then it had gold threads through it. And um, sometimes with the kids, we're like, okay, well, why were they these specific colors? And the, the embroidery work that was on the veils and on the, the, the covering that went was the ceiling when they put it all together, all of them were made with the blue and the purple and the scarlet and the white. But in Hebrew, do you know that you can, you can play colors like you can play numbers? Yeah, I'm aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to play colors for just a minute. All right, so blue, of course, is symbolic of heaven, of the presence of God. Okay, so blue gets to be God's color. And then red is going to be like blood and man and mortality, mortality. and it's going to be man's color. Okay, <clears throat> so what happens if you mix God and man together? The color is purple. And that represents priesthood. I'm, I'm not kidding. This is really fun. Well, I know. I, I actually, I actually think like it colors. is fun. Okay. It's connecting with what I was thinking. Okay, so <clears throat> blue again is God's presence. And now we're going to mix yellow. Yellow is a, a representative of trial and opposition. Okay? So we mix blue, God's presence, with trials. And we have new life. We learn. We grow, and we have prosperity. Green is new life, and it comes by experiencing trials and God's presence through those trials. Okay, so let's go to orange. We're going to mix red and yellow. Actually, this is kind of fun. Though. I know. It is fun. Yeah, I was thinking of 
I was thinking of the whole concept of of some of what I was going going to go into, and maybe we'll touch it later. But of the idea that a, a priest or a priesthood represents bringing man to God. Man to God, exactly, and exactly. it does it with the colors too. And it that really is what's going on in the tabernacle. Okay, so there is an orange in the tabernacle, maybe fire, you could think, but. Basically, orange is red, man, and mortality mixed with trial and opposition. But you notice there's no God in this. And so it brings judgment. And orange, like fire, is judgment. Okay? Fascinating. All right. Now, my favorite one is magenta. And to get magenta, you have to mix mortality and man with God and add white. Add victory. And when you have God's presence in mortality and victory, it is the atonement. And so the colors on the front gate and on all the tapestries was red and blue and white. And even in the colors, it was speaking of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Remember that there's gold threads embroidered through it as well and you're going to see the gold threads increase as you get closer to the presence of God. You'll see all the golds start to increase as you get closer. All right so a lot of people are like why in the world do we need to learn all this stuff about tabernacle in the wilderness? It is my belief that you cannot understand prophecy and the book of Revelation without understanding what it's built on. And the foundation of our faith is in the Old Testament. So, in the daily offerings that were given in the tabernacle, every morning they would give an offering, a burnt offering, at 9 a.m. And then in the afternoon, the last one would be at 3 p.m. And in effect, what that did is it, it kind of made a sandwich of the most um, pleasing offering to God, the burnt offering, and then every other offering that was made was between those two offerings every day, okay? The daily offering couldn't begin until the priest opened the gate. Now, by the way, they'd been up for hours before this preparing, but it couldn't begin until the gates were open. Now, check this out. In Revelation chapter 4, as soon as we're done with the letters to the seven churches, it says, and this after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, saying, Come up hither, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. So what we learn from this is that the whole book of Revelation is enacting a temple scene. What temple scene is John referring to. And most scholars believe that John had to have been a priest in the temple because... Because he knew too much. He knew to too be. much. Yeah. Stuff that the normal person would mm. not have known in order for him to write the book of Revelation. All right. Now, something, just just a really quick tangent here. The come up hither? Is that where you're going? No, I wasn't. You, you 
<laughs> yeah, we could go there, that's but a, we don't have time. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's really But cool. what I was going to go to is the, the, the letters right before this in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, that are so full of symbolism and, and literary structure. and I mean, Anyway, but the cool part is that all of the blessings that are promised to the seven churches can be found in Revelation 21 and 20, 20 to 22. And so basically, and that's the wedding supper from 19 to 22. Those are, that's your wedding supper. So basically the way John has set the book up is that the letters to the seven churches are invitations to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's so cool. We'll get to do Revelation sometime. They'll probably make us do it like in one lesson, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. In at the altar of sacrifice, when you walk through the gate there, um, it's, it's important to realize that here you're going to meet your first mediator. Every altar is associated with a covenant, and every covenant requires a mediator to bring someone from a lower state to a higher state. It requires someone to mediate for whatever about that covenant that person didn't get while they were learning, right? So although each individual prepared the sacrifice for himself and for his family, he was not, a, even he slaughtered the sacrifice himself. I was going to say, it was very personal. In one a absolutely, yeah. yes. And they were allowed, but they were not allowed to approach the altar because the offering was being made to cleanse them. So they weren't, so only the priest could bring the offering up to the altar and it's I, I'm going to be they brought it to the priest and the priest brings it to the exactly altar. so in of course in this situation your sons of Aaron your Levites are going to be the mediator here to bring them into a higher glory past the first courtyard okay a couple things to note about the horns on the altar we're not going to read through all these slides that you can get them on uh, Mike and Nancy's website but the horns of the altar were symbolic of power, all right? And these horns on the altar symbolized power so completely, and you've even got um, in Luke, you've got Christ being called the horn of salvation. That means he has power to save. But this was so well known in ancient Israel, you're going to see this all over the Old Testament now that you know this, okay, that even um, Adonijah, when he was trying to get away and claim refuge, he went into the courtyard and grabbed onto the horn. And that was an attempt to flee justice and get mercy because of the power of the mercy of God that was in the horns on the altar. That's why all of your altars are going to have horns on the, on the four corners, okay? All right, we talked about the fact that they're going to do a daily offering every day and with this, I want you to realize um, that the burnt offering, I, it drives me nuts when I see pictures like of Adam offering his offering or, or Noah offering their burnt offering or even Abraham because the burnt offering was probably the most intense preparation required for an offering in the temple. 
I mean, they had to divide it into different pieces. They had to examine it. They had to examine its heart and they had to examine the intestines to make sure there was no disease. It had to be a perfect offering. They would skin the animal. The animal, the skin was given to the priest for all of his services. And then the different parts would be washed and salted. I mean, think meat section of the grocery store you know this is this is how all burnt offerings were prepared and you see in this picture that the, the all the different it actually took six priests to go up and put the morning offering on the altar go yeah, ahead i actually wanted to uh, approach this a little bit when i get into my um supplemental stuff um, <laughs> in leviticus yes in leviticus because and i'm not going to hit it really hard right here but i would like to have you remind me to hit this again? The burnt offering? Particularly the, the, the daily sacrifice and the burnt offering just a little bit. Okay. So that I can touch on it a little bit later. All right. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say strange things about Daniel and what Daniel's talking about when it says that the daily offering will be restored. Right. And, you know, I'm like, um, it's pretty certain what that daily offering was and what it looks like. But let's go back into the Revelation, the book of Revelation, and see again that in order for you to get what's going on, we very first in chapter 4 had the door open in heaven, and now here in chapter 6, he sees the altar in heaven. And it says that when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And then, I love this, because, you know, how long doesn't really matter. Because white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they would rest for a little season. And then here's the little bit of a wake-up call, until their fellow servants also and their brethren should be killed as they were killed, and all of those that had agreed to do that had been fulfilled. Wow. And I... I love the way this is going to dovetail into what... To what you've got to see. Okay. And I beheld that when he opened the sixth seal, there's a great earthquake, and, and basically at this point we have a time marker here because it says the great day of wrath had come. So we know this is this period, this um, half hour of silence before the, you know, if well, you watch all of right our Daniel after, stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah, because the great day of wrath is now wrath here, is right, after. right? So the, the souls of them being slain is right before, and now the wrath is coming right after. All right, there's a cross-reference to this one in Revelation 20. It gives us a little insight. So just for, a, just for a second, I just wanted to play into this. You notice we're talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, but we're explaining it with the book of Revelation. <laughs> exactly. That's just really cool. And that goes along with our theme. Exactly. It's all prophecy, right? That it's all a type of the past to show the future. So the ordinances that they were acting out were prophecies. And Revelation... Really, that's what ordinance is. is the order? Is acting out a future event or yes. an event that we need to go through? And we just for those people that haven't heard us before, we we often uh, refer to a baptism, just because it's a simple one that's easy to understand. When you are baptized, you lay down the old the old you, 
and you are reborn as a new person. And it is a symbol of dying and being resurrected again. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and they're going to see so much of that in all of this. And anyone that does proxy work for the dead knows that that matters, that you get baptized to be resurrected, okay? And to be able to enter into the kingdom. So in Revelation 20, here's your cross-reference to Revelation 6. It says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and the judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads and in their hands. And they lived, and they reigned with Christ. A thousand years. Don't you love that? They lived. I mean, how many times did Jesus say, he that seeks to save his life will lose it, but he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Shall find it. Well, right? you know, I, I, I've hit this before, but let's just hit it again real fast. We all had to die some one time. Exactly. Well, why not make why it not count? <laughs> do it, yeah, make it count. Why not do it in the service of God? Why do we fear? Right. I mean, why do we fear things that, that I've watched. I've actually got a verse Both of my parents go to the other side of the veil. And you remember. In a way, it was. I know. I don't a, really like it all the time. You're like, no, I want to go I'm, out in glory. I'm like, would you just stick around well, for no, a while? Yeah, that's all. That, no, I, <laughs> I was trying to make the point that both of them went in honor. Absolutely. They both went in service, in love, and. My mother, particularly, we sang to her as she passed. God be with you. Tell as she was passing, we sang. And, yeah, it's heartbreak, but it's heartful, too. And on the other side, when you <clears throat> die with honor, it's joyous. That's why I say it's, I mean, what did Christ say in Gethsemane? Glorify thou me. How was he glorified? Sometimes Actually, we, I think, did he say glorify me or did he say glorify thee? Well, no, he says, and I'm trying to remember the exact quote. Maybe I'm tripping on that. Word, <laughs> a, but he they does both say, got glorified for sure. No, but, he yeah. says, he does say glorify me. And it's in the context of, you know, resurrect, resurrection is about right. to take place. Right. And he's about to join the Father. All right, just a little bit of history that people might not know about the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was at Bethel on his way to Haran that Jacob saw the vision of the ladder. We got to get one whole verse in Genesis 28 about this. It's so important. On which the angels were ascending and descending. And because he had met the Lord and entered into covenants with him there, he named the place Bethel. And he said, it means that this is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So this actually took place on Mount Moriah. Jacob's Ladder is the colloquial name for a bridge between earth and heaven. The place at which Jacob stopped for that night was in reality Mount Moriah, the future home of the temple in Jerusalem. And the same place where Abraham had offered Isaac. On Mount Moriah, the same. They, these are happening in the same places. And what's amazing... It's not accidental. 
No. That all these things took all. place on Mount Moriah. And what's amazing is the ramp that leads up to the altar of sacrifice in the ancient temple in, in ancient Israel was called by the rabbis the gate of heaven. This was the ladder to heaven that brought them back to God. And that's why the offerings mean so much to the Jewish people even today. It is their way to be aligned and in 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 a way that's why they're and one with God. A little bit uh, in mourning per se. Absolutely. But, but yeah. Rabbit trail. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've seen that the that diagram of the zones of holiness and how how from a Hebrew perspective we would view the tabernacle in the wilderness, but they also teach that the tabernacle in the wilderness is just a horizontal depiction of Moses' ascent on Mount Sinai. So you had the people in the outer courtyard down at the foot of the mountain. It's, it's a 2D representation of a 3D ascent. Yes, and you had your 70 elders going up to the holy place, and then they were told to wait while Joshua and Moses continued up to the top of Mount Sinai, where they, where Moses talked with God. Okay, in his presence in the celestial or holy place. And this, of course, is the same ladder that in Isaiah he constructs in his ladder to heaven with seven levels on his ladder. Um, and we absolutely don't have time to go into that. There are uh, Isaiah classes on the ladder to heaven on our website as well. Okay. Brother Marion, or President Marion G. Romney, um, said that temples are to us what Bethel was to Jacob. Even more, they are also the gates to heaven for all of our unendowed kindred dead. And so, of course, this is speaking of the work for the dead. One thing that's important to remember, though, is that the work for the dead is all in preparation for a resurrection. And resurrections are always accompanied. It's, it's flipped two sides for an exaltation or for a judgment, right? And so during the first resurrection at the time of Christ, we know it was a resurrection and a judgment because in DNC 132, it says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have entered into their exaltation according to the promises and sit on their thrones. And are not angels, but are gods. So there was a judgment that occurred there, and they are sitting on their thrones already. And that, I mean, when you think about this in the, ter in the terms of temple work, you know, every time you hear about visions of people coming from the other side and everything, they're, they're in a hurry, right? Because the resurrections are appointed times. And there is a lot of work to get done before the appointed times. So let's head now into the basement floor of the Salt Lake Temple, into the font room, and notice some things. Number one, it's below ground level, which represents death, like we've talked about in baptism and then resurrection. Proxies go in to the font from the west and rise out of the water facing east because it's work for the dead, and it is this, a resurrection motif to rise with rebirth facing the east. 
And if you do anything, see old cemeteries, and even on Temple Mount, the Jews are buried to face the east. Right. Okay. Um, it's also interesting to note that Ephraim is represented at the resurrection of the morning of the first resurrection. So we have the bulls there that, of course, represent the tribes of Israel. But it's interesting to note that Ephraim is represented by the bull in his patriarchal blessing, which is recounted again in Deuteronomy 33. It says that his glory is like the blessing to Ephraim. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock. And his horns are like the horns of unicorns. We won't go there. Uh, with them, he shall push the people toward, together to the ends of the earth. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim. So just, and the thousands of Manasseh. So you just may, imagine the, the missionaries out there pushing, gathering the ends of the earth. This was from Ephraim, in Ephraim's patriarchal blessing, clear back from the first books of the Bible. All right, now we will ascend from the basement level the stairs to the next floor, to the world room, representing the outer courtyard, right? So you can see there in your little diagram there that we are in the outer courtyard. And what we're going to do is we're going to draw parallels between the furnishings that we're going to see in the outer courtyard and where we are in the temple. Now, one of the things that I see misunderstood a lot is the labor. The labor that you notice that the labor is positioned right outside of the entrance to the tabernacle, the holy place. And this labor is going to be where the priests wash before they enter into the tabernacle. Um, we do this today. Before priests administer in any ordinance, they, they are going to wash their hands, okay? So this is not baptism, okay? You had to be baptized before you came into the courtyard, to the kingdom. And the scriptures actually tell us what it is. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, the washing and the sanctifying is a picture of God's word. It's God's word that washes us. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember. Was it Bruce R. McConkie? Um, there was a quote. It said that the scriptures will help you more than any self-help book. <laughs> That's what mm -hmm. he said. It was like, I'm, I'm probably slaughtering it. But that was the general idea. And the word of God, if you keep at it, keep washing, you'll get it. You'll, you'll more and more and more. You'll be able to understand, and it will change your thinking. It will change your heart, and it will wash you. Know, the word, um, and we'll get there a little more later, but the word uh, rehearsal, you could almost interchange with ordinance in context of the Old Testament. Right. Okay, but in that regard, the more you rehearse something, the better you are at it. And right. so... The idea of rehearsing, and the more something. you're able to see it yeah. typologically, yeah, until you until you understand it completely. Sometimes we have to go through the motions before. I mean, most of us are quite hands-on learners instead of right. 
instead of conceptual learners. Don't you love that? At least to Temples make it stick. are like hands-on learning. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. All right, and so just so you know that I didn't pull that out of a hat, here's a couple more. And now, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. And then in the intercessory prayer, Jesus prays, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is it's truth. truth. It's the word that saints. So that laver, I know we want to make it baptism, but it's scripture study. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's learning his word and washing ourselves in it. And the word was made flesh. So remember, Jesus is going to claim. Here, here's his claim on the labor right here. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so a couple of historical things about the labor that are really cool is that, number one, the basin was fashioned from the polished brass mirrors of the women. They gave their mirrors because they were polished and shiny and beautiful to be fashioned into... As a matter of fact, you remember when Moses came down, they were so grateful that they had been forgiven for the golden calf thing. That they... Moses had to tell them, stop bringing stuff. We have enough gold. We got enough silver. We're ready to build. Everybody, stop. Okay? And, and they were so ready to keep God's commandments. And it was placed between the altar and the doorway. It was for the washing of the hands and the feet before they officiated at the altar. As we come and approach, we're in the tabernacle in the wilderness now, okay, and we're coming up to the entrance to the tabernacle right here. This is going to be the holy place. You can see from the diagram on, on your slide here that the first two-thirds of the tabernacle was called the holy place. And then the last one-third was the holy of holies. And there was a separation between the two, okay? The front part of it represented a terrestrial glory. And of course, the holy of holies, the presence of God, is going to represent a celestial glory. So as you're walking through the temple, on the same first level, the terrestrial room will face directly east again. And participants are introduced through the veil into the celestial room. And you can see all of this in, in the models. Well, they used to have the models at the visitor center. I don't know if they've moved them, but I loved the I models that they got had. Moved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and good thing, too. But we're looking so forward to when it's opened up again. Um, the participants are introduced into the celestial room from the terrestrial room, just like we went from telestial to terrestrial, where we'll move from terrestrial to celestial, just like in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So while we're here in the terrestrial kingdom, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, let's take a look at the furnishings that are in the holy place. There are three. There's the menorah, the table of shewbread, and the altar, the incense altar. This is not, they, they don't offer animals on this altar. This is the burning of incense. So let's take a look at scriptures and see what we can find out. 
um, it was a positive commandment that they were to offer the incense every day. So with the daily offering, the burnt offerings that were offered in the morning and the evening, they also burned incense in the morning and the evening. And they trimmed up and lit the, the, all the lamps that were burning olive oil in the holy place. So all of these things were done on a daily basis. The offering of the incense was considered to be the holiest and most sacred thing that you could do. And it was, actually, they believed that if they were called to offer the incense, then they would be blessed for the rest of their lives. And because of that, you were only allowed to do it once in a lifetime. You could only be chosen to offer the incense one time. So it was a coveted and very sacred opportunity for the priesthood. And um, this, you see here a picture in the uh, Qumran. They believe that they discovered some incense that had been preserved for the temple. The, the formula, there was 11 different herbs and, and spices that made the incense. Like that KFC, right? Yeah, yeah, it does, right? A coveted <laughs> recipe. No, actually, they would give their lives before they would give the recipe for the Not temple incense. The Antivas family was responsible. They had different families responsible for different areas of the temple. And the Antivas family was responsible. And it was like a perfume. And it was like top secret. People would give their lives before they would reveal one of the temple formulas. So that's why it was really cool that they found this because, of course, with our microscopes and chemistry and everything, they, they pulled it all apart. They're, of course, at the Temple Institute... They're trying to reconstruct how to how make to the, the temple incense. The okay. Now, um, on the Day of Atonement, when offerings, and only on the Day of Atonement, when offerings had been made and slain on the altar, the priest would come in, the high priest, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, the one day of year, the holiest day of the year, he would do every service. I mean, usually they had whole teams of priests going around doing all Levites, doing, or well, Aaron. The Aaronic priesthood would be going around doing all the services, and then the Levites would be doing the music and all of the, the services that were not as directly associated with the priesthood. Anyway, the point is that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest did everything. So here you can see the high priest on the Day of Atonement putting the offering of the atonement on the altar of incense. So what is that? And it was golden. You could see it was golden. And here I, I wanted to read a verse from DNC 38. For all flesh is corrupted before me, and the powers of darkness prevail upon the earth among the children of men in the presence of the hosts of heaven, which causes silence to reign. And all eternity is pained. The angels are waiting the great command to reap down the earth. When they're reaping down, what are they wanting to reap down? Think of the parables in Matthew 13, the wheat and the tares. Tear. So the angels are try are wanting to take the tares. Why do they want to get the tares? So the wheat can Because the tares are choking the wheat. Yeah. DNC 86. They want to reap down the earth to gather the tares that they can be burned. And behold, the enemy is combined. So this image in the Doctrine and Covenants of silence in heaven and this anticipation, the silence is that they can't go stop the evil that they're seeing. It's kind of like in the Book of Mormon. With, uh, we and we've talked often about this before with, right, in relation to the... Alma and Amulek. Yeah. Amulek saying, get it, stop it. And Alma saying, I can't. Yeah. I'm forbidden to do so. 
All right, so um, here you see the, the agents are sitting back. Come on, coach, send us in. Send us in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So here you see the high priest. He's dressed in what's called his golden garments. And oh my gosh, we could do a whole lesson on the priest's golden garments, but the high priest's golden garments. But um, the thing that you need to notice here is that he would have, on the Day of Atonement, he would have only been in his golden garments for the morning and the evening on offering. All the other offerings that were made on the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest, was addressed as a servant. He was addressed in the white clothes totally of the white. Levites, totally in white. So you can see that this, you would know right off the gate from this painting that this would have been the morning or the evening incense offering, not the one that, the special one that he does in between on the Day of Atonement. All right, why do we care? Because if you don't, you don't know what's going on in the book of Revelation. You're like, what's the book of Revelation about? It's <laughs> exactly. Like... So listen to this, Revelation 8. Well, actually, we're going to start with one, verse 1 and go to all the way to verse 6. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. So what is silence in heaven? It's angels waiting to go. It's like we haven't been given... The earth hasn't been given deliverance yet. Deliverance, yes, and, and it's merciful of God that it hasn't because God isn't going to send a judgment until Pharaoh has had umpteen opportunities to repent. Yep. Okay? <laughs> All right. Um, so, and we've talked about being the hour of judgment being the seven year period, according to second Ezra chapter seven in the end time and the half hour just being half of that. It's the front half of it. Okay. Well, I guess, and the back half of it, but it, in scripture, it's referring to the front half of it. And I saw the seven angels, which stood before God and to them were given seven trumpets. And we all know about the trumpets, right? Bad news. When the trumpets blow, judgment is being poured out. Okay? Well, it's good news and bad news. Yes, that's true, because if, if I mean, the tares were choking you and you were almost dead and then the judgment happened... It's kind of like the Red Sea. Yeah. Good news or bad news? Exactly. Know? Exactly. That is what's going on here. An angel came and stood at the altar. Where is, the, where is someone in the temple standing at an altar? Okay, we're doing the incense offering. And he had a golden censer. A censer is a little shovel, but this is really important. Because on every day of the year in the temple, they used a silver censer to hold. They would get the coals out from the altar of sacrifice and bring them into and put them on the altar here to burn the um, incense. And they would use a silver shovel. But one day a year, they used golden everything. Guess what day? That's kind of tough. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. So we know that this is a day of atonement. See, that's what's going on here, okay? Because we have someone standing at the altar of incense, and it actually tells you which altar it is because it says it's the golden altar. Which altar is gold? It's the one out right in, in the holy place. It's not the altar of sacrifice. It's right in before the, the court. veil. It's right in, before the veil, okay? And it was given him much incense. Well, guess what happens on the day of atonement? He has to have a double handful of incense. So John is cluing us in in several ways that what's happening in heaven is the day of atonement, the day of judgment is being acted out by God and the angels in the courtroom of heaven on the earth. 
right now in preparation for his descent on the Day of Atonement on the Mount of Olives. And it's all throughout the book of Revelation. Do you see how this gets so exciting? You never knew you needed to know about Leviticus 16. Yeah, you didn't know about the tabernacle in the wilderness because you didn't know it actually applied to the book of Revelation. So the smoke of the incense, which is, it says right there, the prayers of of the the saints saints. are ascending to God. Okay, so hold hold the phone for just a minute. When do the prayers, our prayers, get more intense? When we're in trouble. Yeah. Okay, so that's a clue. Lots of smoke going up from the prayer altar here out of the angel's hand. And so finally, the cup of iniquity is full. Finally, it is time for judgment. And so notice what happens. The angel takes the censer and fills it with the fire of the altar. This is like the testimony of the prayers of the saints. And he casts it to the earth. And there's voices and thunders and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels get ready to sound. So at this point... Which marks... This, this is the judgment and the deliverance. Yeah, which marks the center point. Adam and Diamond, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, so notice that here we have a second mediator. So here we have a high priest, and you're going to notice every time it kind of changes kingdoms. So you had your mediator of the Levitical priests and the Aaronic priests at the the altar in the Telestial, and then they were there to mediate so that we could go to the Terrestrial. And here we are in the Terrestrial, and we have someone else that is going to mediate. He's the high priest, and he will mediate for us to be able to enter into a celestial state right there. All right, so the second piece of furniture we're going to see in the holy place, this terrestrial area, is the table of showbread. And the showbread table has 12 loaves of bread on it, that represent unleavened bread, that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And as you can see, is the presence of the 12 tribes of Israel right before God's presence. It's, it's God is right there in the Holy of Holies, and this table is right in front of it. And this is the bread of the covenant. The covenant that Israel made to be his people, and he to be their God. Well, and we have to partake of the bread of life, yes. being Christ, so, in order to move forward from so that point. guess what they did? Every week, they would replace the table, the bread on the table, and the priests would eat the showbread. Is there any place that we eat bread every week on the Sabbath day to renew a covenant with God? Okay, this is all being enacted in the temple for a nation. The 12 tribes of Israel represent a nation in covenant with God. And then, of course, Jesus is going to claim the showbread and say that I am the bread of life. He that cometh unto me will never hunger, and he that believeth on me will never thirst. I was trying not to read it all, but you almost have to read it all. All that the Father has given me shall come to me. I came down from heaven like the manna, like the bread from heaven. I came down from heaven not to do my will, but to do his. And the Father has promised me that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but I will raise it up at the last day. Guys, that means celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. This, you know, 
they all get saved at their level. At, but all of them that will not reject him, that in the end time, somehow, through judgments or, or whatever it takes, that all of them that will repent and come to him, he will lose not one. Right, this is such a beautiful covenant, such a beautiful promise right here in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And for us, every week, at the table of shewbread with the sacrament. Okay, so this is the bread of the presence we talked about. It was how it was unleavened. The, that is because the leaven is a symbol of pride and corruption all through the Bible. And a, a lot of people, a lot of times kids will say, well, how come our sacrament bread is leavened? And um, my belief on that is because the gospel was to go to the nations during the time of the Gentiles because the atonement of Christ was covering the leaven. And, and so at, now his atonement is covering the at leaven. At Pentecost, it is two leavened loaves. That's right. The time and of the they, Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles, and they are leavened loaves. So I think it's absolutely appropriate that our bread is leavened. I'm not sure it's a really good thing. But uh, that's actually one of the things I wonder in the millennium. Are we going to eat unleavened bread or not? I don't know. I don't know. But it no, will they, be a new time period. Sure. And, and and it will build on everything that went before. The laws and the, and the ordinances that we will be enacting in the millennial temples. All right. So this is just fun. This is um, the Temple Institute in um, Jerusalem. And they are practicing practicing for the building of that third temple and there you're, you're going to like this the the showbread is actually baked in the shape of hebrew letters oh, <laughs> this, no. is gonna, this is gonna send you chasing squirrels oh, okay. everywhere yep okay so um the third piece of furniture in the tabernacle is going to be the menorah the golden lampstand and um I'm going to move right ahead because we have a lot to cover. And it. remember we kind of talked about at the beginning that when... Okay, so think about this. What lights the courtyard? What is lighting the celestial kingdom? The big menorahs. No, 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 that, that's, that's at the in, temple in Herod's right. temple in Jerusalem. That, no, right. in Tabernacle in the Wilderness, what's lighting the outer courtyard? It's not a hard question. It's a daylight. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. It's not <laughs> meant to trick anybody here, okay? No, it's the natural light. The natural light. So in our in our celestial world, we see through a natural sunlight man type point of view, right? So when you walk into the holy place, when you walk into the terrestrial kingdom, what is lighting it in there? The seven candlesticks. The menorah, yes. Of Revelation also, it's and seven candlesticks. the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of Christ is lighting the inside and it's reflecting off of the walls and we are now surrounded by the Spirit of God. You can see why when we are washed with the, with the Word in the labor and now we come into this place where we're surrounded by the Spirit of God. It's the only light in the holy place. And this is cool because, you know, our menorah that we use all the time for object lessons and everything, it's, you know. Should I show them? 
yeah, you can show them, but it, it, it really, they, they design all kinds of menorahs, but they're nothing like the ones that would have been in the temple. Number one, should I confess? This is wax. All the translation, <laughs> it, all the translations in, in Revelation that talk about the churches being candlesticks and everything, it's a mistranslation. The menorahs always burned olive oil. <laughs> they weren't candles, okay? And 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 it, it was always a lampstand, not a candlestick. Yeah. <laughs> so here in your menorah in the temple, it's going to burn olive oil. And there's going to be cups, seven cups on the top. And they're going to have to um, uh, basically clean these out and take care of the wicks and everything every single day in the morning and in the evening. That's part of the service of the tabernacle. But when they're commanded to build the menorah, what's really fun is it talks about all these buds and knops. And, you know, there's like a whole chapter <laughs> on how to make the buds and the knops. Okay, so here is... You have to be quite the goldsmith because oh, it was supposed goodness. to be beaten yes. out of one piece of gold. Yes. And they say that it's a secret how they made it strong enough because gold is a soft metal, how they made it strong enough so that the branches didn't sag, sag in time. Okay, so... But this is the fun part, that there's three branches spring from each side of the main stem. I love that because there's three branches of the house of Israel, right, in the end time. Three branches, and then there's three shapes, and then there's three sets of each, and each branch under the lamp, and three knobs were found, and one at each juncture, and then three double branches on the stem. It's threes, 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 all over the place, right? And then seven. Right. And then um, we have here Jesus saying... I am the light of the world, and he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So here again, Jesus is claiming every piece, everything piece in, the in the temple is yeah. a type of him. And this 333 all over the place is symbolic of the Holy Spirit being poured out from the Godhead. The, the three. So... Why all the knops and almonds and almonds of all things? You would think it would be olives or or, or maybe even figs, but almonds? Do you, I think do you it's remember? just all nuts. Myself. It's all nuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. Point for Farrell. Okay, so um, Aaron's rod was the one that was an almond branch. That it's the one that blossoms for the Aaronic priesthood in in uh, the we haven't got to it staff, yet. Yeah, right. right. Okay, and so here you can see this is the knob right here on your slide. This is when it's talking about knobs. It's this like bulb part. Okay, and then it's the part that blossoms into a flower on an almond tree or branch. And then I want to see the seven branched almond tree. That's no no. <laughs> I bet you'll find one someday. <laughs> so, and then they had the cup on the top that was shaped like an almond that would carry the oil. Okay. And this is really cool because what it's picturing is it's picturing the priesthood blossoming and then bearing fruit, the nut at the top. Okay. So it's kind of like a picture of Aaron's rod. Guess what's in the Ark of the Covenant? Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod. A symbol of the priesthood and the blossoming of the priesthood as we move into higher and higher priesthoods in the millennial day in the presence of God and the holy angels. So almond trees are the first to bloom in the spring and almond tree is suggestive of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
which totally makes sense. Which cool. is in because the spring. First fruits, resurrections. In the spring. <laughs> first fruits Beautiful. of the resurrection. Are yes, on and the Jesus is the first fruit. More importantly, it was a symbol which established Aaronic priesthood, the authority to administer in the ordinances of the priesthood. All right, so the within the veil, the veil was a type or a symbol for the body of Christ. We're moving on to the veil now, is the veil that you're going to see as you're standing in this holy place. And look at that picture. Don't you love that painting? That you can see the menorah and the light from the menorah reflecting on the gold walls. That's in, a wonderful, in, wonderful in representation. Yeah. Okay. All right. And at his crucifixion, the veil was rent. And many recognize him as recognize Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. In a very real sense, the Father reveals himself through the death and resurrection of the Son. Indeed, all men who enter into the presence of the Father will know that they do so only through the gate of the Savior. So what we're about to see here is that our third mediator is right there. It's the veil itself. And Jesus Christ is the veil. In Leviticus, and the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil, because you will die. Okay, God's presence is there in the holy place. It was only once a year that the high priest was supposed to go into the holy place and speak with God face to face. For I will appear in the cloud, in the King James it says upon, that is a mistranslation, Practically every other translation says over or above. And in Exodus, it says above. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. And that's important because the <laughs> seraphim, the cherubs, are on the mercy seat. God is above them. Well, in DNC 88, you have the saints being caught up exactly. in the cloud. Exactly. And so in, in a way, it's kind of like... The Moses going up Mount Sinai is is horizontal, but then when you get into the Holy of Holies, all of a sudden it goes vertical. Mm -hmm. And so you start having that within the celestial kingdom, there are three heavens or degrees. And in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, the bottom of the Ark was one piece of furniture, and the mercy seat that the cherubs were on was a second piece. They're not all one piece. There are two pieces of furniture, the mercy seat and the ark. And then God is above that. So I'm counting one, two, three, right there in the Holy of Holies. Okay? And Isaiah actually plays that out in, the, in his Ladder to Heaven. He actually gives us more information about the one, two, three in the Holy of Holies than we have in other scripture. So here we are in the terrestrial room, and we've seen the symbolism of Christ and the light of Christ and the table of shoe bread, the bread of life, and the prayers of the saints. And, and we see the veil, just like they would have seen the veil in the, the holy place. They would have come to the veil, okay? Now, in Doctrine and Covenants, it says, and again, Verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by my new and everlasting covenant, and it is sealed to them, this is, of course, our passages where we have temple marriages here, okay? And that if they have this all done properly, it will be a full force when they are out of this world. So wait a minute. Are we getting ready to leave the world here 
in our marriage and in our physical location in the temple. Remember, Mount Sinai was otherworldly. They couldn't touch it. Or, or they it was die. almost a portal. And, and Moses was face was shiny. They will pass by the angels. What angels? If you're in the tabernacle in the wilderness, where are the angels? There they are. The golden cherubim that are all embroidered mm. on the veil in the tabernacle to their exaltation and their glory. I love this in 2 Corinthians, for I am a jealous over you with a godly jealousy, and I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This is so beautiful as you move to the veil. Now check this one out. Tell me if Paul knew about the tabernacle. And tell him, listen to what he says here. Now, where remission of these, our sins is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. He is the veil. I employ no servant there. I employ, yes. This is Jesus Christ alone. There you can see the cherubim embroidered on the veil in the tabernacle there. And you can also see the ark that's described in Revelation in the Holy of Holies in heaven that's described in Revelation 15. The holy place was separated from the Holy of Holies by four gold-covered pillars which from which hung a beautiful veil of fine twine linen. Be, be aware that this is one piece. It's not like a theater curtain with doors or anything. This is one piece, solid piece. The cherubim or angels were visible from either side. No one other than the high priest was allowed to pass through that veil, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. At that time, he passed by the cherubim on the veil, to present himself at the mercy seat where final absolution for the sins of Israel was made. So this is important to realize. Um, I've heard people say, well, the curtain, the veil was 18 inches thick. And it wasn't 18 inches thick, but kind of, okay? there was It was actually a double veil, okay? So there was like 18 inches of walkway between the veil and he would the high priest would go in on the south side by the menorah and then he would walk through and then he would come into the holy place around the inner veil on the north side okay and there's elaborate descriptions of how they did it how they were to hang it and the the aisle this this place that and you notice that the high priest is wearing white here right he is performing the ordinances of the Day of Atonement here. You notice that his censer is not silver. It's gold. It's gold, okay? And then that the, the thing that he's carrying with the incense is actually called a spoon. <laughs> so in the... Ta- it's in a the, big spoon. Yeah, when you read about it in, in Exodus, <laughs> okay? This, this is the spoon, okay? And he is going to bring the hot coals, and he's going to set them down in front of the Ark of the Covenant and put the incense on it. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. I love this um, by Brigham Young. Your endowment is 
to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you to walk back into the presence of the Father. Think of the straight and narrow path from the gate to the Holy of Holies, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them key words and signs and tokens pertaining to the Holy Priesthood, and gain your exaltation in spite of earth and hell. What a beautiful promise and what a beautiful picture of temples. So at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, this is from Matthew 27. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Well, I'd love to jump on a rabbit trail I right know, here. I'm I like, know. There's, so there's such a rabbit there. trail I'd love to jump on. But look at this. But look. should I jump just for a second? Okay. I'll go just, ahead and jump. Ah, I'm ready. Okay. Follow the squirrel. Okay. I love the work, and each might have their own opinion, but I love the work of Ron Wyatt. And with Ron mm -hmm. Wyatt, yeah. you understand that at that time when the earth shook and that earthquake, that a crack went down underneath Golgotha. And the Lord's blood literally spelt, went down the crack, and anointed the ark. The ark, just like it was pictured on the Day of Atonement. Yeah, and so and now some people might have issue with that. Personally, I have a strong witness that it's true. Uh, I think it's absolutely, because it was pictured yeah, because in the it's a precise fulfillment, like like all the fulfillments. Right. And because Passover Jesus and, is every piece of furniture, yeah, he I, I think it fits the pattern perfectly. Yeah. So yeah. I'm really grateful to that experience. So I'm going to leave that rabbit trail just that long. <laughs> okay. All right. So continuing on the same level from the tea restaurant room that we were in the Salt Lake Temple, and we entered through the veil into the celestial room. So here is a painting of the tearing of that veil, and we now enter through the veil into the celestial room in the tabernacle in the wilderness. This would be called the Holy of, the Holies. Holy of Holies. Okay. Now, in the, in the in celestial room in the Salt Lake Temple, there are special rooms on the right, which is on the south side again, the warmth and the light, which are located in the southeast quadrant of the Salt Lake Temple. And the southeast is your point of greatest light. So Orson Pratt set up an observatory on Temple Square and mapped out the points of greatest light. And then he actually carved, had them carve the, the moon phases accurate to Salt Lake City. And that's, that's important. Stones, yeah. That's important because you notice that, you know, I've said from the beginning that we go clockwise as we ascend in the Salt Lake Temple. In Jerusalem... When they go onto Temple Mount, they go counterclockwise. Right. Yep. We read left to right. Left Thank to you. right. That Hebrew is right <laughs> to Hebrew left. They read. So all the languages to the west of Jerusalem read left. left to right, and all the languages to the right of Jerusalem read right to left. I think it's the same with the whirlpools, right? In the northern hemisphere, in the south, they spin yes, opposite they, directions, they do right? They spin like a, like a. Okay. So this is amazing because what you're going to see is you're going to see that temples are oriented to the light where they're built. They actually call them different the for that reason. Go ahead. Yeah, a hurricane is called one, and then a 
all of a sudden it went. It was in my head, and I've lost it. A anti-hurricane. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I know. I remember too. Typhoon. That's okay, what I was looking for. Typhoon. They spin different directions, right? Right. Okay. So it everything, every detail is playing into the ascension of temples and to reaching the point of greatest light, which is the presence of. The Father. So uh, we talked about the um, the natural light being the um, the light in the telestial kingdom, and then we talked about the Spirit of God being the light in the terrestrial kingdom. What is the light in the celestial kingdom? Think of the tabernacle. Where is the light? Hmm. You got me for a minute. Straight from the presence of God. It's the Shekinah. It's the, oh, the, the, yeah, the Shekinah, however you want to say it, the, the glory of God is the light. You're right. In right. the Holy of Holies. I'm slow. And so even, even the light is ascending in its imagery. So in, in reality, in the Holy of Holies, the actual light did come through the Shekinah glory. Yes. Absolutely. All right, so on the right, you've got the three special rooms. Two of them are ceiling rooms. The one on the left represents the work for the dead. The one on the right represents the work for the living. And they flank the Holy of Holies in this celestial room in the Salt Lake Temple. This is very cool. This is the, a picture of the Holy of Holies. You can see the stained glass window there of um, Joseph Smith and the first vision, and you can see that there's a dome on the top. And if you go to the next floor up, they actually have a dome room. And this is the dome over, it's representing God's celestial kingdom here. And on this floor, on the next level up in the temple, they have, this is where they have all the priesthood um, offices, the 70s, and they all have offices up there on, on this room, except for this particular on one. It, it's it's <clears throat> called the Dome Room. So in the tabernacle in the wilderness, the Holy of Holies is the presence of God and the seraphs. Because the veil was torn at the crucifixion of Christ, we no longer can only have one the prophet enter there one time a year. But we can, through the blood of Jesus Christ, enter into the presence of God by going to the temple. It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing. So we spoke a bit before about how the covering, the kipparot, is the uh, the mercy seat is a separate piece of furniture. It represents um, in Isaiah. It represents the seraph level of those who have, like Isaiah, like Nephi, like oh gosh, I'm trying to think of others that Abraham, Moses. They they are prophets that ascend to the mount of God and see prophecy, see a vision of the end. From, from the, the beginning. beginning. And this is represented by the seraphs. They stand at the throne of God. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. We notice that it's crafted from a single sheet of gold. Sometimes, like in the Kirtland Temple, they'll say that they were like on a gold, there was a gold platform underneath them. Some people have speculated that that was the symbolic of the, the mercy seat. Right. He would stand above 
okay? And then in Exodus, it says, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the Ark of the Testimony. Remember, it's the Ark of the Testimony because it has the testimony of the priesthood, it has the testimony of the law, and then it has the Ten Commandment tablets, and inside the Ark is also the manna that is the testimony that God will take care, take of, us. care of us. He will keep his promises, and he will save us. This is pretty cool. Okay, there's we're, we're going to talk about the throne room in heaven for just a minute. For there is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and that his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And here's that scripture I told you that we would read um, from the Book of Mormon that talked about not fearing not fearing what was coming. It says that the people of Ammon, who were numbered among the people of Nephi, did not look upon shedding the blood of their brethren. With They did look upon the shedding of the blood of their brethren with the greatest abhorrence, and they never could be prevailed, be prevailed upon to take up arms against their brethren. And they never did look upon death with any degree of terror for their hope and their view of Christ and the resurrection. Therefore, death was swallowed up to them in the victory of Christ over it. This is in what the book of Revelation calls, these are the overcomers. And I think that's a clear perspective of how we need to go into the times of head. We need to not fear. Absolutely. Yeah, we need to be what we, what we want to be is comfortable in the, hand in the idea that we're in his hand, that death isn't the end, that our victory is in him. And we will do whatever he tells us to do. Right? In Revelation 15, it says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And then that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. And they were standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And the reason this is so beautiful and the reason it's usually pictured as sapphire. You remember when they uh, ascended oh, on Mount the, Sinai? It's, it's all sapphire. over the book of Revelation. Ezekiel sees the sapphire throne room floor. Um, anyway, the this sapphire, the sea of glass, is a representative of the overcomers. And I actually have a dear, dear friend who had a vision of the sea of glass and it was so beautiful that when she told me, it, it has, the sapphire has like this crystalline structure because it's like a computer chip. It is the record. It is a record of the saints and the faithful. I think a heaven. computer chip is a bad description. I think a crystalline chip. Okay. Okay, less. less. See, I don't know enough about it to yeah. know the difference. Probably not computers. Goodbye. Okay, all right. But. But a crystalline chip, you know. But this is like the record of a heaven. Bad comparison is Superman's fortress, you know, with the okay. <laughs> with the crystalline structure. <laughs> okay. So, you know, we saw it in the Holy of Holies, that dome room. It had all the filing cabinets of all the records. Just think about it. The records 
are right there at the sea of glass. And it is what she saw was that it of of all the things in heaven, this was the most sacred thing to Heavenly Father, this record of all of those who made it home, who had been faithful, who were true, the 144,000 having the harps of God standing on this sea of glass. And if you compare it to the other pieces of furnishings that you see in the throne room in the book of Revelation, we see the altar of incense, we see the menorah, we see... Um, and we don't we hours. don't see the labor, and that's why some people believe that the sea of glass is that washing in the word, that sanctification of his children that make it home. Of course, um, the 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 beasts that are right next to the throne of God are are magnificent creatures that are representative of multi dimensions. That's why they have so many eyes and so many wings. They just it's how, how can you describe them in levels. our, our yeah, it's levels world to see in higher heavens right and then you notice that in your descriptions of the throne room of god in revelation they're concentric circles and so it's just like the tabernacle in the wilderness you've got holiness in the center and then different levels of holiness and progression as you move outward from the throne and you can see that you have these dimensional beings that are next to the throne of God but then out, on the outside there you have the 24 elders and so so many people have speculated on the 24 elders well Joseph Smith tells us that they belong to the seven churches and that they are then in paradise so according to the law of Moses, no sacrifice can be offered on behalf of anyone who is not present because it's being offered on their behalf, right? And so we have the seven churches being represented here. Uh, to represent the people in ancient Israel, 24 courses of lay attendants were appointed. These were stationary men or men of station in, in the scriptures are standing men and they stood in the Israelite court so if you if you are in Herod's temple and the second temple and you go up those curved 15 steps of the Nicanor steps right when you got into the priest court where the altar of sacrifices at the top it was like a sidewalk and this would be where the witnesses stood the 24 witnesses that represented the tribes of Israel witnessing the offerings that were being made in their behalf, okay? Um, and they um, to, they acted, they did two things. They, they, what, they witnessed the offerings, but then the second thing is they acted kind of like temple guides, temple, you know, workers. The, so temple workers in the temple. They, they would help those who had business in the temple, show them where to go and what to do. The men of station were dismissed after the Hallel, was chanted at the end of the uh, offerings, probably because the people, when they responded to the Hallel, showed that they needed no more help. They served 18 days in the years as followed at the appointed times. On Passover, on Pentecost, all eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles, and all eight days of the Feast of Dedication. So here is a picture of Herod's temple at the time of Christ, and there you can see the hall of the Israelites or the uh, court of the Israelites right there. And they come up from rounded stairs that came up from the women's court there. So again, you can see these concentric degrees of glory surrounding the throne of God. And you love 
that in Revelation it says that the 24 elders took their crowns and threw them on the sea of glass and gave all to God. Beautiful, beautiful imagery there. So here we see the uh, high priest on the Day of Atonement, the only day of the year he would have been in the presence of God at the Ark of the Covenant. He's offering the incense offering there. And because of the, of the curtain and everything that was there, the incense offering here is going to fill the Holy of Holies with smoke. And, and this was actually what happened. That's why they had the double handful of incense on the Day of Atonement is to fill this um, holy of holies with smoke. And we're going to see it in Revelation 15. And after that, I looked and beheld the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And of course, that's a clue. What? When did anyone in scripture wear a golden girdle? We'll look in a minute. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials filled with the wrath of God. Okay, so we know. It's in this time. This is when the bowls of wrath are going to be poured out. So it's in that second half of the wrath. Who live forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke. So here again is your the incense in front of the ark being filled with the glory of God. What lights the Holy of Holies? The Shekinah, the glory of God, from his power. And no man was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So going back to Revelation chapter 1, you will find that the only other person that wears a golden girdle is the Savior himself. And so we have, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, and to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, like one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paths with a golden girdle. So this is Christ preparing to descent when those final bowls of wrath of judgment are poured out. So we're almost almost done. Just a, a, a quick more couple of things about the layout of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And here you can see that if you draw a line straight down the middle of the outer court there, you'll see that the terrestrial entrance to the holy place is right there in the middle. So you can see that in some ways, there's a smaller percentage of people ascending in, in each yeah. level as, as you go there, okay? You're 10 virgins. Yeah. And 50%. Then, so this floor plan shows that the tabernacle, which was 50 cubits by 100 cubits on the outer perimeter, could be divided into two equal squares. And last time we talked about how all of these dimensions are creating a timeline, right? Well, I just wanted to show you that the, the first zone of holiness was the telestial, the outer courtyard. And that I wanted you to see that it's half of the total space there. And that inside of it is right in the direct center is the altar. Okay, and this is gonna be the burnt offering altar, the one where you, um, the animals 
were slaughtered here. And I think you're going to go into that a little bit more. And then the second and third zones, terrestrial and celestial, take the other half. Okay? And um, the holy place and the holy of holies. And the center of the second half of Temple Mount, if you want to call it that, is going to be the ark in the holy of holies. Okay? And... Like we said, they, they, they're doing symbols of Christ in the colors. They're doing symbols of Christ in the numbers. They're doing symbols of Christ in every piece of furniture. But here we can see that the tabernacle is also a map. And we've showed you this before. But when you put a map of the world on Temple Mount there, you can see that the altar of, of sacrifice is on Jerusalem and the Holy of Holies is in Jackson County, Missouri. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, you, would, you should have known my Father also. But from henceforth you know him and have seen him. It's all about coming to Christ. Thank you very much. We we just really now for the bonus part from Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> we really enjoyed yeah. giving giving this to you, and uh, till next time. Hey, I win. By the way. Well, that's what it's all about. Right? Oh, man. <laughs> I owe you big time. <laughs> well, you'll probably cut 10. You'll probably cut 10 of me coughing. Yeah, wait a minute. You coughed. You coughed. Yeah, that that. Point. Oh, yeah. That's, there's a good five minutes there. Yeah, but maybe 10. I'll give you, I'll give you 15. <laughs> I so got clobbered. I lost. I had some great stuff. I lost oh, the really bet. No, no everyone will make you feel bad. Everyone will gain from that. Did you see that, that Pharaoh hat? <laughs> I did. Yeah, not Pharaoh. <laughs> Pharaoh. Okay. And I was like, boy, I walked into that one. <laughs> <laughs> we, I cracked up. He didn't see it. I saw it, and I had to rewind it more. <laughs> No, we, we think it's hilarious when you do silly stuff. I loved the camels. <laughs> when you had fun oh, yeah. with the camels when There's I was There's tons of them. I think, I think it's really fun. I actually oh, think. Oh, my gosh. We try so to. Once, of course, you can see I do. I try to once in a while just throw stupid stuff out there so that <laughs> it keeps people a little light. I want to hear all your rabbit holes, though. <laughs> oh, I'm going to chase all the squirrels down all the rabbit holes. <laughs> <laughs>